Every time I see the kids and everybody leave, I always think of the mass exodus from Israel. Although, it's not quite true because that would mean we would be the ones left behind, right? <laughs> that would be a problem in my mind. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here. Um, gone through a lot in life, um, which I'm thankful for to be on the other side. Um, today I wanted to... to Steal a little part of the title from the, the title in Deuteronomy 6, and it says, Obey God and Prosper. Um, to finish off the title, it was to fear, love, and hate the Lord. So, in a sense, what I want to do is talk about obeying God and prospering in the context of dealing with our fears and how we are supposed to respond to that, dealing with, or how we are supposed to respond in love, and then the concept of hating the Lord. And um, so, there is an inherent opposite to the phrase, I believe, obey God and prosper. And that is for those of us who belong to Him. Um, And that opposite is to disobey God and wither. I believe that this, that this idea or concept is a tool that God can, may, and does use to correct those of his children who are aware of his commandments but are choosing not to follow them. For most instances, a person may not be following them due to choice. There may be what uh, we consider extenuating circumstances um, that have to do with maybe the use or lack of wisdom, of understanding, or to some degree... Um, fear that exists in a person's life. But I believe our God is a sovereign God and can I can trust that he knows our motives, challenges, fears, and how to grow us to what he would have us become. The idea of obey or disobey God see, uh, also seems to be connected to a pattern of behavior, not just a one-time episode or event that are, that are dispersed and separated and connected and all of that. If we look at our lives accurately, we will see that there is an interlocking pattern of disobedience to the scripture that exists in our lives. This pattern is what we have to make make changes to. I would like to say that we will continue to fight this fight until we are fully in the resurrection with new bodies that will be um, fully able and capable to follow God's commands. I believe that we have the ability to make these changes, although we may need others' experiences, knowledge, wisdom, and assistance. So, I'd like to take tithe as an example. And this is, again, not a sermon on giving your tithes or about tithe itself, but rather a sermon um, on obedience to the Lord. When I was growing up, I questioned my mom and why she was always paying the church so much money. And I was young. So these concepts develop out of what we experience and what we watch and what we learn and see and questions that we ask. Um, The concept of paying the church instead of giving to the church, I believe, developed because I always was watching them pay their bills. And the church was another bill that they were paying. So being young, I came to the conclusion that the church was... And God, or God, was just another bill. But as they instructed me, I came to learn that this command of obedience uh, was a command of obedience and not a debt. 
God does not need the money, but he does require the obedience, not for his benefit, but for ours. One of the many things that we learn in this process is trust. We can take God, we learn that we can take God at his word when he says that he will do something, and he does. So as I grew older, I began to, uh, to have a job and take over my expenses. These conversations about setting aside the tithe command continued. My mom told me this story. My father and her stopped paying their tithe not long after they first were married. She said that they felt that they uh, could just not afford to pay it. They were afraid and they, that they did not have enough money to make all the, the bills and stuff they needed to make. She said that she found out that as she went on over a few month period of time that the bills and costs would come from areas that they had not planned out. They'd just pop up. And stuff that wasn't common for them. And what she came to find out is as she took a little closer look that those extra costs tended to be what the tithe that they should have been paying already was, plus maybe a little extra, somewhere around 20%. In noticing this, she began to believe that God wanted her to be obedient in paying her tithe. I could always remember her saying, he's going to take it anyway to make us obedient, which was interesting. Those things still reminisce through my head all the time. So she says she began paying the tithe again, no matter what. It was paid first always. If she did not have enough money for other expenses, the tithe was paid. She saw something amazing after this. She said that even if they did not have the money for that their bills were always paid, food was always on the table, and the needs were always met. She never knew uh, where it was coming from but that God always provided. This is still her testimony to this day. She is, continues to be obedient and paying her tithe, and God has always continued to provide for her. Just even a couple of weeks ago, and my mom does really well with her, her costs and money and all of that, but again, things come up. And she says she never knows where it's coming from, but she trusts the Lord for the needs. And they're always met. So when we talk about prospering, which is being obedient to God and being prosperous, we tend to mean one who develops success over a period of time. So when we want to talk about what it means to wither in that same context, this would be referring to a person who does not develop success or maybe moves from prosperity to poverty. Again, this may not be the case for all um, cases of poverty, but rather a tool used in correction. So, I'd like to go ahead and talk about the concepts of fear, love, and hate as they relate to affecting our choices, behavior, and obedience. These are three very powerful emotions that have a direct effect on our thoughts and our behaviors. So, the first one I'd like to look at is, is that concept of fear. And the definition of this is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain, or a threat of pain, or life being in jeopardy. 
Fear could also be linked to a monetary survival, a lack of knowledge or skill, being accepted by others, or even being taken seriously. How this works is, to, is that we feel fear, which triggers the thought process, which then in turn triggers a behavioral response. At other times, we have the thought uh, first, which triggers the fear to trigger more thoughts and eventually a behavioral response. These responses typically are learned or trained. They, are all, they also include biological, chemical components, such as the introduction of adrenaline, which prepares our bodies for action. The thought process could also trigger a fear response due to the perception of danger or threat of danger, real or not real. But that is based on the perception. So the Bible relates the point in time that fear entered into creation. It is found in the fall of man through Adam and Eve in Genesis uh, 3, 8, and 9. God is calling out to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had eaten of the fruit that they were instructed not to do. Their response is that they hid from God, which is not possible, but we try to conceive of those things. Um, it was their fear response. They said, we were afraid when God asked them why. Okay. This is a fear of impending judgment or receiving consequence, which means that there is a higher authority. Many of the kids I work with at work um, have had many negative or perceived negative experiences prior to arriving at our school. These experiences could be related to home environment, school environment, social environment, or a combination of them all during the learning process prior to arriving to our site. They have learned that responding in certain manners can get them out of the perceived danger, at least temporarily. So they may scream, become physically violent to themselves or others. They may cry or withdraw into themselves, remaining quiet, or they may run away. But why do they resort to these behaviors? Because they have learned in the past that they work. The, but the Bible discusses the concept of fear and all of its significant meanings for us to learn how to respond. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3 says this. Now is the commandment, the, stat uh, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over the, uh, to possess it, that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and all of his, statu uh, all of his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. <clears throat> We read, that the, we read that we are to fear the Lord and that that fear will cause us to keep His commandments so that our lives may be prolonged and that we are blessed. This type of fear is seen as having a positive outcome. People can ruminate until, upon a fear until that particular fear of something uh, negative 
causes them to be paralyzed and not do anything. And there is a huge list of fears that we deal with in the behavioral science where people have ruminated on these things and they, it really just wrecks their life. I remember, I don't know why I was watching this, but I was watching one of those uh, day TV shows or what have you and this woman, they were trying to deal with her fear of cats. She's sitting there talking to the host and doing all of a sudden there's a cat further away than the other side of the auditorium is that somebody's just sitting over there holding. She turns around, sees it, and screams and runs off. Okay. When we talk about having a fear with a positive outcome, that this example of fear is not what we're talking about. I would suggest that there are two primary categories of fear. One is a healthy fear, and the other is an unhealthy fear. A healthy fear keeps us safe and seeking after the right things in life, and an unhealthy fear binds us into the circumstances of life, and which then we may choose against God's commands. So let's go back into the, the tithe story. The reason my parents stopped paying their tithe was related to an unhealthy fear of circumstances. The reason they paid their tithe was related to this fearing God and following His commandments idea. In Genesis 12, 10 through 20, we find the story of Abram and Sarai um, and their journey to Egypt during a famine in the land. And Abram tells Sarai to tell the people and the Pharaoh that she is his sister for fear that they will kill him on account of... uh, on account of her, um, due to her being so beautiful. Abraham did not lie because Sarai is his half-sister, but he did not tell the complete truth either. So, my question to you is, is it a healthy response or an unhealthy response of fear? Yes, no, which? Unhealthy, absolutely. Why? Yes. There was not a trust in God that was going on there. So part of our job is to learn from our mistakes, but fear, if we embrace the unhealthy fear, can lead us to repeat our behaviors. His, his meaning God's, or, um, Abraham's consequences from the trip, uh, that trip to Egypt and his deceit, I believe still affect us today. Egypt um, was where the handmaiden, Hagar, joined Abram's household and Sarai, as Sarai's handmaiden. Ishmael from Hagar and Abraham and... Um, and the Arabic culture, along with the continued fight over who um, was given God's promise, Ishmael or Isaac, of the promised and holy land. Okay, that fight still continues today. I wonder, you know, when I, when I look further in the scriptures, in Genesis 20, we find that it seems like Abraham did not learn the lesson dealing with the fear in this whole thing, because he absolutely repeats the same thing, uh, the same scenario with King Abimelech. He again told Sarah to, um, to tell the king and all the people that she was his sister so that they would not kill him. So his ex- obviously somewhere in his life, and we tend, again, this is learned things. So we tend to have learned this in somewhere, and he may have experienced this happening either in his life prior to coming into the Holy Land or somewhere in that process where he has seen a man that has a beautiful wife and they kill him to take the wife. Makes sense. I did want to point out 
that he did say that why he was afraid specifically in Genesis 20:11, and the phrase that he used was um, because I thought there was no fear of God in this place. This concept of the fear that he is talking about suggests that there is something more powerful, God, who holds humans accountable for their behaviors, someone who holds the power of life and death, which the knowledge of this concept affects behavior. In the Gospels, we have the account of Peter denying Christ out of fear. And in the conversation prior to that, it's, um, you know, he's taught, Peter's talking to Jesus and he goes, I will never deny you. There is no way. And then he gets into the, the situation in Matthew 26. Starting at 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him and said, You two were uh, with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them, all saying, I do not know what you were uh, talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were um, there, The man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later... The bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too, one of them, for even the way you talk gives you you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I don't blame Peter. Jesus' life is life or death at this point. Peter does not have the full concept and awareness that death is not going to hold Christ. Okay? I'd be afraid too. Put in that situation, I don't think I could say that I would do something different. I don't think many of us could. So, how do we address this issue in our lives, this issue of dealing with fear? And getting from an unhealthy balance in certain areas of our lives to a healthy balance. And a healthy balance, in my mind, is determined as where we are fearing the Lord and following His commands. We must first identify that fear does exist in different areas in our lives. And it's going to be different for each of us. Then we have to begin to share this fear with a trusted person who maybe has wisdom or knowledge um, of dealing in those areas. And... um, then begin to train new responses that are in line with God's commands. If we just take the sponsor away, that sponsor will eventually keep coming back. But if we continue to train and train, no, I'm going to do this one, do it through our thought process, do it through our behavior, do it through our conversations, do it through our readings, that we train those new behaviors, um, then eventually we will place what was an unhealthy fear into a healthy fear of God and, and following His commands. This is not always easily done. I can guarantee that because we are a people of pattern and changing those patterns takes effort. I do believe that trust is directly connected to the concept of fear. The more trust is built in a situation to be uh, handled or in a self-skill, the fear decreases to a healthier level. In the case of fearing God, the more we begin to follow as He has commanded us, the more we see His response to our trust builds in who He is 
and our uh, importance to him that shows his concern and care for us and according to his word. This establishes a healthy fear. So the more we do, as he has said, the more he is not correcting but rewarding and trust is built and it continues and it reestablishes itself. This is but a few accounts of the discussion of fear in the biblical text. It could take several sermons to go through all of them. But I would challenge you to do your own study in this topic through the the biblical text. I wanted to move to love. And we read in Deuteronomy 7, 9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. That is amazing to me, to the thousandth generation. Okay? I struggle with doing it in my generation, right? But I'm not God. So we read, those who love the Lord, this phrase typically is connected to a second phrase, and that is, and keep his commandments. Just like those who fear the Lord will keep his commandments, those who love the Lord and keep his commandments, and he will bless them. Again, love is an emotion that there is many behavioral expressions of love, just as there are with fear and with hate. Probably the best guide to the love expression is found in uh, the New Testament in Mark. So, well, the first part is in Mark 12. You guys are all familiar with these, but I wanted to read this. Verses 28 through 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he answered them well. Asked him, meaning Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandments than these. But the big question is, How do we love the Lord with all of our heart? soul, mind, and strength. Because what gets in the way is that desire to reward ourself by ourself. When we express that there is a food we love, what's our behavioral response? We order it often, right? Something we love to go back and eat. We go to a certain restaurant. Oh, they make this. I want this. Okay? What if there is a movie that we'd love to see? We do all that we can to make time to see that movie. Same with a book. Same with a play, uh, theater, activity. And you can keep adding to that. What if there is a person that we love? Okay, What do we do then? We seek all we can do to spend time with them, to, to communicate with them, to communicate our care, our concern, 
communicate their importance and their value to us, we put that person above all others to learn all we can can about them, unless you are more on the narcissistic side, then it's I spend time so that you can learn about me. Okay. This drive does not stop. It keeps going throughout our entire life. We might be anxious at first, right? When we meet somebody that we kind of like, we might even be a little afraid. But what is our response when we find out that that same person who we have interest in has interest in us, maybe even loves us? Does our behavioral responses change? Does our thought process change? I would suggest so. Um, I would consider then maybe using the words elation, wonder, excitement, an increased behavioral response through increased talking and time spent and moving toward maybe marriage or becoming one with each other, above all others that exist, even above ourselves and our needs, because with that person, will our needs will be met as well. We are commanded also to love our neighbor as ourself, not always easily done. Um, I just don't like the same things that they do. Don't get along. I, I don't like the language they do. I don't like all the drinking they do. Um, I don't like the way they treat me. I don't like how they really are about themselves. You know, there's, there's no room for all of that. And my personal favorite, I'm an introvert and people drain me, so just leave me alone. Okay. Let me go to the John passage. This is the second portion of our guide to how we love. It's John 13. Starting in verse 4. Wait a minute. Thank you. I wrote it down wrong. Okay. A new, commi- uh, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, um, you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We, are, we do a lot of that one anothering in here in the Disciple Center, and as we meet others in the faith without, outside um, of our walls. We are commanded to love one another as Jesus loved us. Um, I did mention that I believe that we do a good job, but I also believe there's always, always room for improvement. So what I'd like to do is I want to read the love chapter, what's been referred to as the love chapter in Corinthians, but I would like you to do the following. As I read the passage, I want you to think, first of a person that you are in relationship with, I don't care who it is. I don't care what the level of relationship it is. Just somebody that you're in a relationship with. And I want you, as I read these words, to think through that relationship and see if the words and the behavior in the relationship match and the thought process match. So everybody close their eyes and get a person into their head real quick. Love is patient. 
Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked, nor does it take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, love believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, we'll stop there. How did it match up? If you're like me, you got work to do, right? And that's okay. We will be doing this. But the idea is we keep working. Now let me have, I want to read it one more time, but I want you to think from a different perspective. I want you to think from the the person you were just thinking about. I want you to think from their perspective of your behavior and interactions with them. So go ahead and close your eyes again and now try to think from their perspective. Do they think that you match up to this? And you'll know in their behaviors and how they talk and all of those things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Is not arrogant. Does not act becoming. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. And love never fails. You may have your answer in what needs to be worked on in your life. Does this... Will all the individuals in your life, or do this with all the individuals in your life, start with the most closest circles and then begin to expand out? What I think you'll find up find out is that as you begin to make the changes with the patterns and the people that are closest to you and then that next circle, that the patterns and how you interact with others begins to change automatically because the pattern is set and it's starting to move and the pattern is changing so that now you begin to reflect what that chapter talks about in our interactions with people. The answer to the question, how do we love the Lord with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength? To spend more time in finding out what pleases Him. In building trust within Him. That means struggling through the Scriptures. In learning who He is in following His commands, because that is what pleases Him. And to work to make the Corinthians 13 passage become real in all of our relationships. That, I believe, is what loving the Lord means. 
Finally, we have the greatest example of love we can follow. It is the example of the obedience by Jesus to the Father, even unto death. This love shown by the Father and Jesus for our benefit in this life and the next. He loves us. How will we respond to Him? In First Samuel 17, 1 through 52, we find the story of David and Goliath. And this is a story of about a boy who was raised to fear the Lord and follow His commands. A boy who loved the Lord. He had a healthy fear of God and built trust in the Lord, knowing who He is and the level of importance that David had with God. Not because of what David did, but because of what God did. Like, like each of us was in God's sight. He represented his belief and trusting in his God and did what was right in, and was blessed by God even though all others were fearful and would refuse to act. They were afraid of Goliath. David trusted God because all of those times in the field as a shepherd and fighting all the enemies and all of that, God was with him. The third emotional and behavioral position is the one that I have a healthy fear of being found in. Okay, I say that gently. And that is the idea of hating the Lord. And I'll express what that means in a second. Back in Deuteronomy 7, verses 10 and 11, we read this. So we just, I'm going to read, start back through 9, and so the contrast is there. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His, com- uh, His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays them sorry, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them all. Never thought about, before I started reading that, of the concept of hating God. I was not raised to believe, to even think about that concept. So we read the phrase, the phrase, who hates him. This is directed toward Israel, which is the example of those who are God's chosen people. This means this could include us as believers. They are really only, there are really only two that can judge each of us and how much this third position really applies. The two are each one of us, as best as possible, and then God. There is a stern warning about what God will do to those of his people who hate him. This appears that the person knows that what God expects, but chooses to do the opposite and lead others to do the same. This does not appear to be the person who is really trying, but struggles with changing or establishing the behavioral patterns of loving the Lord, maybe even struggling with the fear, or even learning to really love our neighbors. 
This is a person who willingly sins against God. The commandment that mostly comes to mind here for me is this. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And I know when I was being raised, it was always taught that taking God's name in vain was about using cuss words. And after sitting in a Bruce for so many years, I don't believe that's the case. It's about bearing the name of God and then not acting like you belong to Him. In 2 Samuel 11 through 1, 12 through, uh, all the way through uh, 21st, 25th verse of 12, we find the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. Usually it is only referred to as David and Bathsheba, but Uriah plays an important role in the story. I am using this story to give an example to hating the Lord as a believer. So David was walking on the rooftop of his palace while his armies were going out to war. He sees a woman bathing. She's beautiful. He must be able to see all of her, and his mind struggles with the lust of the body. But it is good to be king, right? What's that phrase? I don't know what the movie that's coming in. It's good to be king, right? Thank you. Maybe it's good to be king. Maybe not in this context. So, it's good to be king except when it is with another man's wife and you belong to God. David sins for her, has sexual relations with her, and gets her pregnant. But notice in the story, notice in the story that she obeyed the purification rituals set forth in the scripture before she returns back to her home. Interesting. Soon she sends a message to King David that she is pregnant. Oh, and he's the father, by the way. Her husband is out fighting the war with the rest of David's army. No problem, says King David. I can solve this problem. So King David sends to, sends to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, sends a message. Being king, David gives Uriah a gift and sends him home to spend time with his wife so that they may have sexual relations and cover up David's sin. Good plan, right? Except he belongs to God. And he's dealing with people who are righteous. But Uriah is an honorable man and stays at the king's gate and refuses to go home to be with his wife. David inquires why Uriah is not spending time with his wife. Um, then King David realizes his plan to cover up his sin will not work. He then sends Uriah back to the battle, to the front, with a message for the generals to put Uriah on the forefront of the battle and withdraw the troops so that Uriah will be killed. When Bathsheba hears of her husband's death, again, she mourns the appropriate for the appropriate amount of time. And then King David brings her into the palace, making Bathsheba his wife. King David being the hero, so to speak, right? That's the way it looks. David went from loving and fearing the Lord to hating the Lord. He violated the following commandments. Loving the Lord with all of his heart. Taking God's name vainly. Being king, he's going to be held to a higher standard. Committing adultery. Committing murder. And coveting his neighbor's wife. 
There are harsh consequences for David, which affect others, including Bathsheba and their son. But David does ultimately repent after the prophet Nathan comes to him and explains to David what David has done. In that act, when David was being self-serving, he was doing an act of hating the Lord. In Matthew 26, we move to the New Testament, where we get the story of Judas betraying Jesus to the chief priest for 30 pieces of silver. This is another example of hating the Lord. Judas was focused on the wrong things. He was the group's accountant. No offense, Steve. <laughs> uh, when he realizes he has done what he, uh, what he has done, really what he's guilty of, he goes out and hangs himself. This is a permanent end. There is no ability for correction here. Any of us could get to where we function in the hate of the Lord. God forbid that would happen. But it can. All three of us, all three of these concepts, fear, love, and hate, have behavioral outcomes, which can affect our thoughts as well as our thoughts affecting our behavior. If we are to fear the Lord... We are to take him seriously at what he says to do and what he says he will do. We are also to teach others the same and raise our children to fear in the same way. Scripture says, Do not fear him who can harm the body and give pain to the body, which I, I can handle anything but pain, which is kind of funny. But rather fear the one who can kill the soul. Our goal must be establishing healthy fear instead of living in unhealthy fear where it comes up in our life. If we love the Lord, we seek Him first to know His commands. We are to live out the 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as a guide to expressing our love for others and those also in the faith. We are to teach our children and grandchildren and model this example to others God puts in our path. If we are practicing hating the Lord, then look for God's correction. Hopefully. Not God's wrath. If we love the Lord and do our commandments, His commandments, we will prosper. If we, fe if we fear the Lord and do His commandments, we will prosper. If we live in unhealthy fear of God and correct, if we live in unhealthy fear, God will correct and maybe by using the idea of disobeying and withering so that ultimately we will prosper. Let's pray.